All right, so we're continuing with our simultaneous two series at the same time. So the, t the first one is the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. As we go through the eight elements, we normally have them listed as Rom Roman numeral one of your outline, but I did not do that this week since there's so many copies of that, and I needed more room. Um, however, uh, this is element 7L, which is uh, element seven is the first five steps you take when, you, when a person becomes a Christian. Uh, in the Bible, uh, as we've pointed out, most people took these five steps in, uh, at the beginning of their Christian life. Today, in American Christianity, with our reduced Christianity, most Christians have taken two of these five. And uh, so it's something you want to uh, study biblically and make sure you take all five of these steps to get your Christian life started. I've listed the five steps under Roman numeral two, subpoint bold A, uh, little two, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with them. And then um, at the same time, this, we're, we're doing a new Baptizing the Holy Spirit series. The 2012 version was like 12 parts. Looks like this part, this is going to end up 16 parts. And the 2012 version had sections A and B. This is going to have section A, B, and C. So I've reviewed um, sections A and B in, in Roman numeral 2, B and C of your outline on the first page. And again, those are all available on podcast. Uh, at the end of the outline is an email address for Stephen Leopold that you can email him and he'll send you the, all the outlines. And uh, I know a lot of people like to listen to our podcast. So... Um, So uh, we are, if you look at uh, Roman numeral 2C, we're actually at BHS, that is Baptized in the Holy Spirit series, um, number 10 today, more on the crucial necessity of rediscovering and restoring biblical patterns. So last week we, t we started talking about biblical patterns, and um, that's kind of the last subject that we're going to cover in section B, which is called finding and following the, the biblical pattern. Uh, and then on point D at the bottom of the outline, that's kind of where we're going. Uh, we'll be doing a baptizing the Holy Spirit, how to impart and receive the baptism in the Spirit, which on the old series was chapter 4. That will be now cha uh, chapters 13 through 16. So flip over. There's a little bit at the top about what we covered last Sunday. And I'm not going to review that much. Uh, we ended with uh, what the gates of Hades are all about. That was actually a place that Jesus took the disciples to say that I'm going to build a new type of, of congregation, people who go help people and liberate people from the gates of Hades instead of, because the, what God was upset with the Old Testament Jews all the time about was they were supposed to mediate the presence of God to a lost world and help people come to know the Lord and follow the Lord. And they constantly were actually prejudiced against the world around them. And you get a lot of that in, in Christianity today. A lot of churches are kind of uh, not very user-friendly toward people who don't know much about Christianity and don't have many uh, uh, systems in their church, whether it's uh, the one-on-one -on -one system that we use or the podcast that we use or the books that we use. They don't have many ways of helping someone who's getting started to walk with the Lord. 
and nor are they very welcoming to someone that's walking the Lord. But one of the things that the Bible calls us to remember is every one of us started lost. We started spiritually blind. Uh, when I, I can still remember the first time I went into an on-fire church in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1974, when I was uh, 17 years old, and I had been a drug addict for about seven years at that point. I had started when I was 10, and I uh, had, by the time I was eight, I had become philosophically an agnostic, didn't know if I believed in God or not, and uh, by the time I was 10, I was pressing out the the implications of that into my into my lifestyle, and uh, because if there is no God, there's really no purpose to, to live. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, and have fun. Uh, so uh, when I walked into a church like this, I remember I sat a lot further rows behind than anyone else was sitting, <laughs> so I could stay as far away from talking to these people as possible. I was the first one out of there after the service. And I said in my heart when they were worshiping, I said, I will never do that. <laughs> so I learned never to say never. Um, so here we go. Today we're going to look more on the crucial necessity of rediscovering and restoring biblical patterns. Crucial necessity is a little redundant, but it's sort of for emphasis. You know, crucial is the same root word as crucifix, and it's uh, the cr or the crux of the matter. And what we're saying is, um, in modern Christianity, that so-called Bible-believing Christians have little proof text here and there to kind of back up uh, sort of their preconceived ideas. What we really need to do if we're going to be Bible-believing Christians is mine the Scriptures deeply, that is, through thorough study, hours of study, years of study, uh, getting into the original languages, whatever it takes, cross-referencing, comparing the various sections of the Bible with the other sections, learning how to read Bible, you know, use biblical imagery, all the things that we teach about how to know your Bible better here. All of us need to use those, and primarily because there are models or patterns of what it means to be a Christian and what the church is supposed to be. And uh, what has kind of happened in modern times is most things that churches are have uh, have derived from various traditions of men or from modern marketing ideas. And so we need to uh, kind of throw that off and rebuild in a more biblical way. And you can't do that if you don't know what the pattern is. There's a reason why if you're going to build puzzles, they give you a picture of the puzzle on the front of the box because you got to know what it's going to look like when it's done. Or if you're going to build a model, they give you a picture and and so forth. And, uh, you know, you know, yesterday, who was, Anvesh and I put together some of that screw-it-together-yourself kind of cheap Martin particle board furniture. And, you know, you got to have instructions or at least a picture of what it's supposed to look like when you're done, right? Uh, so... Uh, without patterns, we're in big trouble. Now, so today I'm really, uh, Roman numeral four, I'm going to get into the, um, first of all, the primacy or the place, you might say, the first, that, that is first place. I'm kind of trying to say the first issue is biblical patterns. And we're going to talk about that uh, from four different points of view. And so the first one is we're going to talk about a thing called the prescribed way. Um, and I'm going to turn in my Bible to 
First Chronicles fifteen thirteen. Kind kind of should have got just left. Grab my phone. I could probably get there faster on my phone. But this will work. Uh, I'm sorry. First Chronicles thirteen. We're going to start with my my apologies. And we're going to read a, a a biblical narrative. Now remember when we talk when we read biblical stories or narratives. We are talking about things that are historically and literally accurate that actually happened. That, that's part of the doctrine of the Bible's infallible or inerrant. If you lose the doctrine that the Bible's infallible or inerrant, then you have nothing in the Bible that you can actually rely on. Because where are you going to draw the lines of what is correct and what is not correct and so forth? So it's important to understand that God is sovereign and providential so he acts, he has an eternal decree, he has eternal plans, and he's always working toward unfolding that eternal plan. And that plan is always to work through his church to turn the lights on for the world. To work through his church to bless the nations. To work through his church to bring the spiritually dead into spiritual life. That's always God's plan in every generation. In a, in a progressive unfolding and greater revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which ultimately now is, is to be, uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is to be revealed to the world through the restoration of the church back, back to what it was intended to be. Right? So, um, this is a story about the Ark of the Covenant which most of you will know is a symbol of the presence of God, which we are now that Ark of the Covenant in the New Testament. Okay? So let's look at this. Uh, this is, of course, if you know First and Second Samuel, you know that uh, in the times of Eli, uh, they went into battle. The Philistines conquered. Eli's sons, Phinehas and Hophni, were killed in the battle, and the Ark of God was, was confiscated. And the Ark of God was among the Philistines for quite some time, a number of years. So later, after Saul had, after the fall and rise of Saul, and after the rise of David, uh, David decides we need to get the Ark of God back, right? And uh, God actually causes the Philistines to start having, uh, the, the King James says hemorrhoids, no one knows exactly what the... Hebrew word means, but they started having tumors, basically, of some kind, and they realized that God was chastising, the Philistines realized God was chastising them for, uh, for having the Ark of the Covenant, which they were not supposed to have. So they said, here's what we need to do to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God. We need to send the Ark of God back to the Israelites. However, not being students of the Scriptures... They had a great idea that they put it on a nice cart with wheels, much more modern than carrying it with four Levites on poles, right? And they sent that ark with a couple oxen, uh, and they kind of pointed the oxen down the road toward, toward the Israelites, slapped the oxen on the rear, and the oxen carried it down to the Israelites. And so Israel, by the time we pick up the story here, Israel has had the Ark of the Covenant for some time, but David is now saying, hey, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city of God, to Jerusalem, and to, to its rightful place in the temple of God, right? So that's where we're picking up the story. 
And then David consulted, notice who he consults here, the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities and with pasture lands that they may meet with us. And let us bring the, back the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Because the Philistines had it, of course. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now, hopefully you notice something here. Who did David not consult? God. <laughs> right? It's one thing to say, well, everybody in the church thought we should do this. It's another thing to make sure it's the, the timing and the will of God and that we do it his way, according to his patterns. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, and to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Where'd they get that idea? The Philistines. Where do we get the ideas about the church today? The American corporations' mass marketing ideas. Right? So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs, with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. They had the whole band out, worshiping the Lord. When they came to the threshing floor of Chedon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down, because he had put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry, because the Lord's outburst against him. Probably Uzzah or Uzzah is my, probably more the correct pronunciation. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to, to this day, um, which is uh, the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Why? Because Obed-Edom was of the people of God, and he had the presence of God in his midst. So that caused Obed-Edom's whole operation, his family, his, his farm, his, uh, his whole operation to be blessed. Right? Now, so David... Uh, a few months later, says, hmm, despite what happened to Uzzah, uh, because he was presumptuous and reached and touched the ark of God, and, and he touched it without the, you know, we can't just come before God's presence any old way we want. We have to come with the fear of God. We have to come cleansed by the blood of Christ. We have to come on the basis of his righteousness, not ours, and so forth. And so, because Uzzah had presumptuously touched the presence of God, God had killed him. And every promise in the book is mine. Every jot. That's a 
silly mentality that some Christians have. Uh, so 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 15. Let's jump ahead to verse 13. And David is telling Zadok the priest and Abiathar the priest and so forth that we need to go ahead and get the, uh, the ark of God down. And uh, let's, uh, maybe we'll start in verse 11. Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest and for the Levites, for five of them, and said to them, you are the heads of the father's household, so the Levites consecrate yourself, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So what David is saying, hey, the scriptures give an exact way the ark of God has to be handled. There's a pattern. And if you ignore the pattern, you do so to your own peril. And the pattern involved a Levitical priest going through a, a process of, of, of setting themselves apart, just like for us to come into the presence of God, we need to think on the grace of God. We need to reposition ourselves by grace. We need to remind ourselves that we're coming before the Lord because when Jesus said it is finished, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and God made the opening for us based on the sacrifice of Christ, not on how spiritual your week was or what a spiritual person you are, but based on the work of Christ. And so uh, there, was a, there was a pattern of how it was to be carried. And again, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord broke out against us because we did not seek him. The ESV says according to the rule. The King James Version says according to the dual order. The New King James says the prescribed order. And there are some translations that say the prescribed pattern. Uh, New American Standard says, or um, what did I just say? New American Standard says, we did not seek him according to the ordinance. Uh, ESV is quite good there, according to the rule. In other words, we did it the way we wanted to. It seemed good. We read church growth books. You know, we, you know, we, we got a big crowd in. It seems to be working because we're measuring success the way American marketing companies would measure success. Sales are up. More people are going through the turnstile. There's more butts in the pew to be crass. That's kind of how uh, modern Americans measure success, right? So um, the point of this is simply this is just one illustration among many that we're, we're going to go through four that, that tell us, show us there are patterns and we must follow the biblical pattern. We can't just define the church any way we want and define how we relate to one another any way we want and how we worship any way we want and how you grow in Christ any way you want and so forth. Let's uh, take up the same idea in Exodus chapter 25. As you know, uh, in the early chapters of Exodus, God has arranged at the end of Genesis for... Israel, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and his 12 sons uh, to be delivered by one of the sons, Joseph. And they are delivered from a mighty famine and go down to Israel. And then a Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph and enslaved the Israelites. And God had promised 
Israel's father, that is Jacob's father, his father, and both Abraham and Isaac, his father and his grandfather, that they would be go to Egypt and that they would be captive there for 400 years. So at the, book of, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, that has been fulfilled. They are now slaves to the Egyptians, and they've been there 400 years, and they've grown from a company of 70 people that came down from Canaan, Palestine, where Israel is today, to Egypt in the time of Joseph. They were about 70. Now they're about 3 million. That's church growth. Uh, and, uh, but they're also in bondage. So they got big numbers, but not necessarily liberty. And so God enters into covenant with them. He judges Egypt with ten plagues. He delivers Israel. They, he takes them through the wilderness. And in Exodus 19, he enters into covenant with Israel, telling them they are going to be a kingdom of priests, a special treasure, if they indeed hear his voice and obey his commandments. And uh, the very same thing that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2.9 Peter applies that, quotes Exodus 19, 5, and 6, and applies that to what the church is supposed to be, the special treasure of God. God has always wanted a people of, for his own possession in the earth, and there's always the people who are lost and don't know God in the earth, and the people who God has knocked on their door, revealed himself to through, through his church and through his people, and called them into new life. And God has made Israel this at this point. And so then he has given them his commandments. In Exodus 20, he gives us the Ten Commandments. And now in Exodus 25, he's telling them to build a tabernacle, which is a theme throughout the whole Bible. Heaven is God's perfect tabernacle. The Garden of Eden was God's tabernacle brought to earth. And now this tabernacle is, is symbolic of the presence of God being among the people of God, just like all the way through in the, in the, eventually Christ becomes the tabernacle, John chapter 1. It says in verse 14, it says, The word of God, Jesus Christ, became flesh, became a human being. And the Greek says, tabernacled among us. He became the tabernacle of God in our midst. And then upon his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church became the tabernacle of God in the earth. What God deals with us about is he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of carrying the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. He wants us to learn how to walk in such a way that we're a welcoming vessel to the Holy Spirit with our attitudes, motivations, actions, not a hindrance to the Holy Spirit and not a grief to the Holy Spirit, right? So God is uh, telling Moses to build a tabernacle and he goes into great detail about every aspect of it the you know from the clips for the curtains and to the to the materials for the curtains to all the furniture everything the chapters and chapters of detail in exodus 25 verse 8 and 9 god says and let them construct a sanctuary or a tabernacle for me that is a place for the presence of god to be in the midst of his people if you noticed uh, when, when you read about where the tabernacle was supposed to be, there were to be four tribes of Israel on each side of the tabernacle, signifying that God dwells in the middle of his people. Okay, you want to find God in the earth? Find the people that walk with God in such a way corporately that he dwells powerfully in their worship and in their lifestyle together. 
So in verse 8 and 9, God reminds Moses to construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, that is among the people of God, according to some of the things that I'm going to show you. Oh, wait, that's a different, a modern translation. According to all, the word all means all. Every little nuance. All the, uh, the pattern I'm going to show you, it's furniture, etc., so that you can, just so you shall construct it. Jumping down to verse 40. Of course, he's telling him in verse 22 about the mercy seat and the cherubim, all kinds of details about how this tabernacle is to be constructed. Not necessarily according to the church growth manuals. According to the scriptures. And the pattern that God had shown him on the mountain, look in verse 40, and see to it that you make them after the pattern for which was shown to you on the mountain. Now, a mountain, as you know in the Bible, is the place where God's glory, heavenly glory, meets through men, with men, on the earth. Okay, so, you know, that's symbolic of the fact that we have to spend time on the mountain of the Lord, in the presence of God, worship, biblical studies, seeking him, and basking in his presence, uh, without that, we're really not even the people of God, to be honest. You know, I, I always find it kind of amazing when I talk to Christians today because, you know, you have a fair number of Bible-believing Christians who say, I'm a follower of Christ, but they don't read their Bible much. And, that's, and they don't spend much time with the Lord. And that's an oxymoron. That is probably a sign that there's not been a complete conversion if, if, uh, because living babies are hungry to nurse. There's a lot of moms in this room. All your kids eat a lot, of, right? When, they first, when they're first born, they eat about every two hours, right? And uh, I, as I always say, uh, I, I, one of my great memories in life was uh, when Catherine gave birth to our daughter, Carla, who's uh, 30 now, be 31 in August, and they, of course, in the hospital, they kind of wash her off a little and put a little blankety thing around her and all cutesy, bring her to back to mom, and she's like 10 or 20 minutes old, and she starts nursing vigorously. And I said, wait a minute, you haven't even heard my seven-part series on why you need to nurse. <laughs> you know, I, I find it amazing that we have to, that, you know, that we have to encourage Christians to read their Bible. That should never be. Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. So, the rest, uh, by the way, that, that verse in Exodus 25, 40 is quoted word for word in Hebrews 8, 5. And, it, uh, and it's quoted in Acts 7, 44 when Stephen is recounting the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin right before they stoned him to death which is not the outcome I usually desire from the messages, but, uh, but oh, uh, don't, don't give your messages to the Sanhedrin, I guess. But uh, anyway, so he, does, you know, he didn't sell many copies of the podcast, but he, he, uh, it did uh, do what God intended for it. So, and he quotes Exodus 40, 25. So um, 
Then you go through the Rex. Let's go to the end of Exodus. And I wish I had more time because if you go through chapters 36, uh, 37, 38, 39, all this, it kind of, after it said to do it this thing this way and the other thing this way and make the curtains of this color and, and do the furniture this way and so forth, then it repeats everything and says, he did the curtains and repeats the whole thing. And, and then it says, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Over and over and over, it basically says, Moses followed the exact pattern and it gives you all the details for all the aspects of the tabernacle over and over and over again to the point where modern people, because modern people have some limitations, let's just say, uh, modern people go, oh, it's so boring, over and over and over. He keeps saying that Moses did it just as the Lord commanded, right? The results are given to us in Exodus chapter 40. After verse 32 of Exodus chapter 40, just as Moses, one more time, they approached the altar, they, they washed, they prepared to approach the altar just though, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the cord all around the tabernacle and all the altar hung the veil for the gateway of the Lord. Thus Moses finished the work. And the you know, Greek word and the Hebrew words mean completed, perfected, matured. Made it whole, exactly as the Lord had commanded, is what it means. Like he did every detail of it. Then, notice the time word there, not before then, not lot long time later, when he completed the work exactly and, and built it exactly according to the pattern, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So many churches today wonder, why is our church drying up? Why is there less of the presence of God in our worship and in our fellowship and so forth? Because uh, the, the truth of the matter is, just like in the natural world, a body without the spirit is dead, and a people of God without the active presence of God is just a cadaver. It's just religion continuing uh, in even as it dries up over five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, what, you know, the idea of revivals are not even that biblical. There are things like revive us again. But the real biblical thing is that what God wants to do is have an increasing visitation of his presence. The more we approximate the pattern, the more we live our lives individually and corporately being set apart, sanctified, to God's ways, the more the power of the Holy Spirit will dwell in our midst. And the more we'll see manifest presence of that. So when they finished, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. When was the last time the presence of God fell so much that people had to stay in the parking lot? <laughs> you know, like, I can't come in. It's too intense, the presence of God. Hopefully you've had experiences with the presence of God, which are not that unnormal, where the presence of God is on you so much that you have to say, Lord, I can't take it. Tone it down some. Uh, because my body, human body, wasn't made for this much of the glory of God. That's a fairly normal experience, and I know lots of people have had it, including myself. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set up until the day when it was taken. Romans 8 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. We talked about how the cloud and the fire earlier in this series were biblical imagery for the Holy Spirit. Throughout all their journey, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So again, this theme of the pattern, Ezekiel 43, 11, I don't have time to go there. You should circle that, underline it. There, about five different ways in one verse, it, it tells us that Israel was to build the tabernacle exactly as God commanded. And that has to do with Ezekiel's vision of a tabernacle that wasn't built, but is a foreshadowing of the eternal presence of God among his people. So uh, next, uh, we want to talk about Christ, our pattern. Now, this is very important because if we're going to talk about, like, people will say, uh, gee, you're saying there's a second experience with the Holy Spirit after we get filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion? Back that up biblically. We're going to look next week in detail at how that exactly happened to Christ. We're going to look at Christ, our model. But for today... I just want to focus on the fact Christ is always the pattern for everything. We can read all about the tabernacle. That's great. I love reading the book of Acts and, and mining through the epistles to look at the pattern of what apostolic New Testament churches are supposed to be. But, but you must never lose sight of those are secondary in comparison to the fact that Christ, our Lord, is our model, our example, our pattern. All of those words, most English translations use the word example, but the Greek really means he's our pattern. He, the reason he became a man is he, he had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit the same way we do. He limited himself. He did not live out of his omniscience. He did not live out of his omnipotence. He did not live out of his omnipresence. He was only one place at a time, leaning on the presence and person and power of the Holy Spirit the same way we do. And we're going to see that next week in more detail. For now, I want to point us to John 13. Uh, see where we are here. John 13, 13 through 15. Boy, let's, let's, uh, I got to hurry. Should have had somebody put, my, put some stickers in the right places in the Bible here. The ones from Tuesday are still in here. Got to get somebody to do that each week. You know, that's probably something you could take over. So uh, if I then, in verse 13 after, or 12, after he washes their feet, which, by the way, the, if you don't know this, in the Hebrew culture at that time, you walked everywhere, and you wore sandals. So even if you had showered that morning, by the time you got there, you'd have been a little bit like John Gray and his campers, you know, <laughs> yesterday afternoon. You're, you know, especially your feet are full of dust and mud and so forth. And so all uh, households of substance, in other words, people who, had a, uh, who were wealthy enough to have a few servants. And like, if you notice in, in Luke 5, John and James, it says they left their father and their servants. Even a, uh, Peter and Andrew did not have servants, so the lower, lower middle class people wouldn't have, or lower, lower working class, people wouldn't have servants. But even in biblical times, even upper working class people had servants. And one of the things you did is you had your servant wash 
the feats of your guest. As a, as a way of saying, we honor you. We're glad to have you here. I'm going to wash your feet. Um, what Jesus has done, he starts off the Passover supper before he's about to tell them about the awesome power of the Holy Spirit that he's going to send after his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and coronation, that is his glorification. He's going to send the most awful, awesome power in the universe right in the midst of his people, the Holy Spirit, and he says, you better not have that if you don't have it in your heart to wash other people's feet. If it is not your deepest desire to, to humble yourself and do the most menial of the task. You know, like, in other words, like, there should be, we, we should probably have to have Jason uh, arbitrate, like, four, because five, six, seven guys are trying to wash the dishes after the dinners, you know? And it's like, wait, 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 we got too many guys trying to wash the dishes. But no, it's my turn. No, no, I did, you did it last week, brother. I got to do it this week. Like, <laughs> like and, you know, people, line, you know, lining up to take out the trash and, into vacuum and you know listen i've already done the dishes at my house can i come over to your house and do the dishes <laughs> you know <laughs> oh you had anybody call you and say that lately can i then they come over and vacuum for you or anything <laughs> they well you should <laughs> what's that <laughs> i believe you should too <laughs> so jesus is saying that's you know jesus washes their feet and it was something that lords didn't do. Only you, you didn't do that in your house. You had your servants do that. So Jesus is ba- making a very clear message. He's saying, I've come to be the lowliest of servants and to redefine what leadership is in every sphere of life, in government, in the church, in the family. I've come to redefine what it means to be a leader. I'm going to wash your feet. That's why Simon Peter doesn't want him to. He's like, Lord, I'm supposed to serve you. You're going to serve me? Jesus is turning the world's way of thinking completely on its head. And he says, uh, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's who I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example, but the Greek word there is a pattern. I gave you a model that you should also do as I did for you. Now, I don't think that necessarily means in our culture that we have foot washing ceremonies. Some churches like that and so forth, and I've seen it done, and I've seen it be a beautiful thing in a few occasions. But uh, more importantly, what it, the whole thing that it represents... Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you can talk about them and have good theology on them. Oh, wait. Is that how verse 17 ends? Not so much. All right, I'm, I'm really low on time, so let's keep moving. The next thing is the church as the tabernacle. Now, I had hoped to have time to read all of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. 
I'm tempted. To, we should have just start the Bible study hour at 8.30 and go to 10.30. But uh, <laughs> although, although no one would come, I could get more covered. Um, Ephesians, a lot of people focus on Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Here's, here's just a little, I'm just going to give you a quick guidance on how to read Ephesians 2. Read it for yourself. Almost everyone reads Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and stops, which when you read it out of context like that, can allow for a radically individualistic interpretation of what justification and being born again and so forth is all about. But if you read the chapter like it should be as one continuous thought, when you go through the door of grace working through faith and you're delivered from the prince of the power of the air and the, and the trespasses and the sins that are now working in the sons of disobedience and you're made the workmanship of God and so forth, you are then no longer aliens and strangers, but you're part of the covenant people of God. Because God has always had one intention, to have a people. That's why Proverbs tells the, us that the person who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound wisdom. Some people can't work that well with other people, and God wants to save you from that. God wants, the, the deeper you go in mutual love, service, and community, the more you're actually going into Christ because Christ dwells in Terry Pellegrino and Jeff Burks and Adam Furlow, among others. Right? So that's what the whole of Ephesians 2 is telling us, and that now we are the recipients of the covenant promises of God that were on Israel it's an anti-dispensationalism message, if you know what dispensationalism is all about. That there's these two, you know, it's kind of anti what they teach at that place you go to on Saturdays. It's the exact opposite message. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's saying that you are a part of a people. And there's no two peoples and two, two Israels. And there's one people of God in the earth, the church. And God is fitting us together and growing us into a holy temple in the Lord. That is, he's setting us apart so his powerful presence can dwell among us. That's his goal. God, you know, you wonder why you had this lousy boss or why you got audited on your taxes or why Officer Diaz pulled you over and gave you a speeding ticket because God is trying to make you a holy temple where his presence can dwell in, his, in our midst. Right? All right, next, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish in two minutes. The Apostolic New Testament mindset, I don't have time to read all these verses, but you need to understand when you're reading the New Testament, it isn't written apart from a context it's written into a context about, and there's a pattern of how they plant churches and how they raise up teams of elders in plurality and how they have a life of mutual service and how they take their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart from house to house and how they praise God and have favor with the people. There's patterns. And what the letters of the New Testament are about is adjusting uh, departures from those patterns. That the, the catechism, we talk about a, a culture of catechism, catecho, uh, that catechism comes from. Catecho is, is a, was a pattern, a way of teaching the scriptures whereby there were questions and memorized answers. And, uh, and every, 
important idea and doctrine of the faith was known by every person in the body. Today we have this kind of idea, well, my pastor knows about the Bible, so that's not good enough. Okay, so look at some of these verses. Uh, If one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice. That's a pattern word, right? We, We have a way of practicing, right, in the churches of God. Paul tells Timothy, you followed, not just you had abstractions about and had great ideas, but as a way of life, you sought to endeavor to be like my example in my teaching, my conduct, my purpose. I always say once you begin to be changed in your motivations, attitudes, and purposes, that's when you know conversion and sanctification are starting to take hold. When you're, The reason you do this or that is, is a whole different reason you do this or that. And you're not, you don't say, well, I'm just this way or I'm that way. Because a Christian should never say that. We're to be Christ-like. The, and our ways are to be in Christ. And Paul is telling Timothy, you followed my example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow my example and my ways which are in Christ. Right? So... Um, I wish I had time to talk about all the ingredients of discipleship, information, formation, and uh, what am I leaving out? Impartation. And so uh, join with me and follow my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern. The things you've learned and received and seen in me, practice these things. Don't just theorize about them. Live this lifestyle and so forth. Last and closing, the Holy Spirit The reason we're seeking an outpouring of the Holy Spirit is he wants to lead and guide us into all the truth. And biblical truth is always applied from the internal attitude motivation level into a way of life as a people. So what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century and into the 21st century has mostly done is livened up worship a little bit, released some spiritual gifts and so forth, But for the most part, it's been totally underestimated what God has in mind. Most Pentecostals and Charismatics, uh, other than some of the Charismatics who came out of mainline denominations in the 60s and 70s, and that movement kind of uh, was killed by the megachurch movement of the 80s. But for the most part, Pentecostal and and, uh, Charismatic Christians have taken the mindsets of fundamentalism and evangelicalism and actually taking the legalism and, and the not thinking about the pattern and the radical individualism and using God for ourselves, he's perfect. We've taken that to whole new heights. Instead of what God's really after is to rethink everything and rebuild everything and to restore all the truth to his church and to see it modeled in local bodies. Amen.